You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The shadow brokers are fed up with all of the peoples. The Callisto Group spearfished the UK's foreign office last year. Lawful intercept shops are alleged to be willing to deal with pariah regimes. The U.S. Director of Central Intelligence calls out WikiLeaks as a hostile intelligence service. And NATO insiders would like to see the Atlantic Alliance weaponized memes. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 14th, 2017. Attention must be paid, right? I mean, Willie Loman said so in Death of a Salesman. Anyway, the attack code salesmen over at the Shadow Brokers seem to be in a Willie Loman-ish mood, and they're pretty sore at all of you peoples who haven't been taking them seriously enough. Their latest dump is of Windows exploitation tools, mostly effective against older versions of the Microsoft operating system that continue to be in use. Some of the material released appears to indicate some interest in banking information. Researchers are generally impressed with what the latest batch contains, but the brokers themselves are feeling like a barker hustling in the wilderness as they hawk their purported NSA equation group wares. They say, and we quote from Motherboard in a cleaned-up sort of way that nonetheless preserves the spirit of the broker's diction, quote, This week the shadow brokers be thinking F-peoples. Follow the links for new dumps, Windows, Swift, Odd Job. Oh, you thought that was it? Some of you peoples is needing reading comprehension. End quote. In fairness to all you peoples, the scriptwriter who's preparing the shadow broker's communiques isn't exactly making reading comprehension easier but give them props at least for fluency and demotic American cussing. One might say some of those peoples is needing remedial composition, but perhaps we shouldn't quibble. Maybe the brokers are referring to the leaks, which we hear include some well-written PowerPoint presentations. Reports late yesterday from the BBC and the Times of London said the British Foreign Office was spearfished in 2016 by the Callisto Group. It's not believed the espionage campaign, for espionage it was, succeeded in discovering anything particularly sensitive. Reports on the incident are based on a study of the Callisto Group released yesterday by Helsinki-headquartered security firm F-Secure. As usual, F-Secure is coy about attribution, but they do tease with informed speculation that Callisto is connected to a nation-state. The espionage group has used infrastructure connected to actors in China, Ukraine, and Russia, but also to criminal organizations dealing drugs and other contraband. 
The Callisto group seems most interested in the near abroad, especially Eastern Europe and the Caucasus, but the incursion into foreign office networks indicates that they have broader interests as well. F-Secure also notes similarities in technique to APT-28, a.k.a. Fancy Bear, a.k.a. the GRU, so signs both criminal and technical tend, as the headlines have been saying, to point toward Russia. The payload Callisto's phishing emails delivered was, according to F-Secure, the scout tool from the hacking team's RCS Galileo program. Hacking Team, of course, is the lawful intercept shop that's been involved in controversy over its alleged willingness to sell its tools to unsavory and often unsanctioned governments. Other such companies have also come under criticism for allegedly showing readiness to deal with sanctioned regimes. Al Jazeera late Monday broke an investigative story in which a reporter posed as a representative of Iran and South Sudan in the market for surveillance tools. The network claims that two Italian companies, IPS and AREA, signaled willingness to deal without appropriate measures taken to ensure that products didn't reach prohibited end-users through, for example, donation, resale, or transshipment. A third company, Chinese outfit Semtian, was willing to sell surveillance products without any curiosity about who the end-user might prove to be. AREA subsequently told Al Jazeera that it, quote, works with the relevant governments to ensure the proper export and legal use of our equipment, end quote. U.S. Director of Central Intelligence Pompeo had some harsh words for WikiLeaks yesterday, calling Mr. Assange's organization a non-state hostile intelligence service, and Mr. Assange himself a narcissist who has created nothing of value. The operation, Pompeo argued before the Center for Strategic and International Studies, provides an implausibly deniable fig leaf for the Russian intelligence services, at best a fellow traveling useful idiot if not an active agent of influence. WikiLeaks, of course, has recently been dumping CIA-focused documents from its Vault 7, with more expected. The reaction to the Vault 7 dumps has been not as strong as many would have expected, since the documents, for the most part, reveal what everybody knew already. The CIA's mission is foreign intelligence. Much of this conflict lies in the realm of influence operations as opposed to hacking proper, and some within NATO would like to weaponize memes, trolling both ISIS and the Russian government. Doing so is easier said than done, and some recent NATO and U.S. State Department attempts along these lines have fallen flat with reviewers, particularly when they attempted humor, sarcasm, or snark. So there's work to be done on the BAFO marketing of ideas. Several suggest the U.S. President's tweets might contain some useful how-to examples. He seems to be trolling North Korea's Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. Anyway... Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. He's also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Uh, Jonathan saw a story come by on Wired recently. Uh, the, the headline was, After Three Years, Why Gmail's End-to-End Encryption is Still Vapor. Uh, take us through this story. Well, basically, uh, Gmail had announced uh, several years back that they were working on uh, getting end-to-end encryption working uh, for their Gmail. And basically, what end-to-end encryption means is that it's encrypted from the sender of the email to the recipient, and so that even even Google itself would not be able to read the contents of the email. And so people had gotten really excited about this and were looking forward to uh, seeing that come out. And I guess just recently, they came out with an announcement saying that they were essentially uh, going to be giving up the project internally, but instead making it open source and leaving it for the open source community to go ahead and further develop that code. There are certainly you know, many products out there that, uh, that tout the fact that they have end-to-end encryption. Why do you think it's particularly challenging for someone like Google to implement it? Right. I guess you're, you're speaking in particular about uh, app, apps like Signal that can do uh, end-to-end encrypted texts, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the issue is that email is a little bit more complicated, in part because of the fact that it's a legacy protocol. It's been around for a long time. But also, as, as a consequence of that, uh, Gmail needs to be able to interoperate with people who might not be using Gmail to read their mail, right? So if a Gmail user is sending a mail to, uh, I don't know, a Yahoo email address, then somehow, you know, Google has to be able to interoperate with them and make sure that their protocol still works. And that introduces some complexities that maybe aren't there in a more closed system where you have, you know, the Signal app, for example, only communicating with other users of that app. With this project going open source now, what are the odds that it'll actually be turned into some sort of workable solution? It's hard to say, of course. Uh, I think certainly this is a little bit disappointing, right? If Google puts their mind to it, uh, they can, um, you know, and, and if they're willing to put the resources behind it, then this is something that I think certainly they would be able to do. Throwing it out there for people to work on who are not going to be paid for what they're doing, it's just unclear, right? It's just unclear who's going to pick that up and who's going to use it and even if, uh, and who's going wor- to work on it, rather. And then it's unclear also, right? If somebody does develop it, there has to be some measure of trust involved because if people don't know who that developer is and they don't trust the quality of their code, then other people just may simply not use it. So uh, it's really unclear at this point what's going to happen, but it is disappointing, and it does seem to make it less likely that this will come to fruition. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. 
proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Ajit Senchetti. He's the CEO and co-founder of Preempt Security, where they say they deliver the industry's first behavioral firewall to protect enterprises from security breaches and malicious insiders. He maintains that one of the fundamental issues cybersecurity professionals need to face is the inherent tension between security and human nature. Cybersecurity for most people is not a productive task. It's something that inhibits business. And most of the time, humans by nature are trying to do their job. They don't always think about whether it's, you know, it's going to be secure or insecure. We have an innate notion of what's ethical and what's not ethical, but generally when it comes to security issues, we're not that trained to do it. And so we're usually trying to get our job done, and sometimes we find out that we did it uh, in a manner that was insecure. It's, you know, if you think about the analogy, it's not a direct analogy, but uh, when you're sitting and watching a TV show about being healthy and eating healthy foods, suddenly some ad comes on and says you can sit at your, you can sit at your, on your couch and we have this little band that goes around your waist and you lose all the belly fat. And what do we do? We remember that because that's an easy way to get where we want to get to, not through the diet, the exercise that we want to. And even when we're in the enterprise, we're looking for easy ways to get our job done because we think it'll be quicker, it'll be more efficient, we can get on to the next, next task. So humans by nature have always evolved to do things quickly. And the problem is nowadays it has impacts on the security posture of an enterprise. I've heard people sometimes refer to IT as the department of no. People will say that, you know, it's easier for me to do the thing that I, even if I'm unsure that that thing might not be the right thing to do from a security point of view, I'm going to get my work done faster if I go ahead and do it, maybe get my hand slapped later, rather than having to go check with IT and probably be told no. It's because of the posture that the two sides have taken. I, I think that's the challenge is we think that IT is the department of no, and IT thinks that people are always going to do the wrong thing. We actually have to change that behavior. You have to consider that these employees and these people are not the weakest link. You have to you have to enable them, make them part of the security posture, and then you will have fewer incidents because when people are aware, they tend to make better choices. How do you promote a collaborative culture between the, the systems users and the IT folks? Yeah, so th that's a very good question. One of the things we set out to do, which is as as you're doing your job, for example, you you are working and one day you suddenly access three new servers. You access them with the credentials of, of the person sitting next to you because you didn't want to go to IT and get the, uh, permission to access those servers. Well, somebody gives you the credentials, you log in from your endpoint and you get your job done. But what you've just done is now that person's credentials show up on your endpoint and if you're compromised, two people's credentials are exposed to some hacker. So what if when you were trying to access these servers, suddenly prompts you and says, well, you're trying to access the server from an endpoint that we haven't seen before. Are you sure this is what you wanted to do? As soon as you see something like that, well, you can verify your identity or you can say, okay, this is not what I wanted to do. But what happens is now you're aware that whenever you do something that's unexpected, whenever you do something that's insecure, somebody's looking at it, somebody's prompting you to and asking you to verify what you're doing, you will do less of it. 
I'll give you another example. You have privileged users, which are the users that most hackers are trying to get to, the credentials. Uh, you have a privileged user who's gone out for a party, he's you know, at a, you know, at a family, a friend's place, and suddenly there's an issue to be handled, and he needs to log in to, to resolve it. What does he do? He usually takes his privileged credentials and logs into a laptop that he finds and tries to get the job done. But what if the system suddenly tells him, well, you used privileged credentials, you're coming in remotely, you're coming from an endpoint that's not managed by us, our business, we're not going to let you do it. Now, suddenly he becomes aware that this is this was being tracked in real time and preventing him from doing it. So the more we start to engage the users and say, this is what you're doing and this is why it's different, the less they're going to do of it. What about the notion of the, the carrot versus the stick? You know, I think to a lot of people, they think the only time IT comes knocking on my door is when I've done something wrong. Ah, uh, we're, we're, we, I, that's a really, really, really good question. We see that quite often, almost like, should I be put in a penalty box because I did these things that were insecure? And there are enterprises starting to talk about that, where they say, for example, the, a phishing email came in, you clicked on that phishing email, your risk level is high, we don't know if you've been compromised, but for the next three days, you don't get access to these sensitive servers. Hmm. Um, that's, that's, that is happening today in enterprises where they want to penalize people for doing things like that. You know, it can get really, really bad. The extreme financial situation, uh, financial services organizations can even say it'll impact your bonus because you're compromising the integrity of our business. But that's really you know, on, the, on the other extreme. But we are seeing people say that there is an impact on what your risk does to what you can access and how quickly you can access it. Now, that's that you, know, you can call it a carrot and stick policy, but the stick there also can be of different kinds, right? You can grade it. You can say, well, you, we think you, we're not sure you've been compromised, so we may block you from accessing these resources, or we may force you to do verification of your identification multiple times during the day, just so that we know that you are who you say you are, and you're gonna to have to do it on your phone, for example. It doesn't all have to be, you know, you get, it's an extreme of situation where if you do something wrong, we're going to force you uh, to do, you're, you're going to be restricted in many different ways. You can actually have many different kinds of responses. You, you can also take away somebody's remote access privileges if they do things that are insecure outside of the business uh, of the enterprise network. So it is a carrot and stick policy and mostly stick, less carrot. You can make it more or less severe depending on the kind of infraction. If you come at it from the other direction, how can you reward people for doing the right thing? What we're seeing, in, in fact, gamification is driving some of this. So I've seen a bank, actually a bank that has, uh, I think, 8 million uh, users uh, or customers. It's a pretty big bank. And what they've done is for their internal employees, they're using uh, scores. And if you hit a certain score in your department or if you hit a certain score in your organization, they get things like Starbucks cards, little reward cards, $20, $50. And, and they're making it very public that somebody got this for, this for what they did from a security standpoint. So these are little, little things, but they found that the impact was much higher than they expected in a positive direction. Because people really want to be recognized especially for something as nebulous and as hard as security. It doesn't take much of the organization. I think the biggest challenge there is uh, mostly cultural because some organizations don't want to do something like that. They don't want to reward the behavior that they think has to be part of your job. I don't believe that that's the right way to look at it. We have to get them to be part of uh, this, uh, the security program. And when you do that, you're going to find benefits that you didn't expect. And they're going to be nonlinear benefits for an enterprise if they did that. That's Ajit Sanchetti from Preempt Security.
And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.